Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, it is Downtown, the podcast. Exactly what announcer man Don Morgan said is true. And I am Rich Kimball. Across the way, it's Carrie Haskell. And our podcast brought to you this week and every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Maybe I should have had some water to drink, Carrie, because uh, I'm salivating a bit because I'm sampling here. This is a behind the curtain stuff. Sampling a mocha no bake cookie that you and your wife made over the weekend. Yeah, it's uh, we no bakes are sort of a New England tradition, and I've always had peanut butter or chocolate. And uh, over the weekend, decided it's time to add some coffee to all this mess. Mm, that's fabulous. Yeah, very happy with the experiment. <laughs> I like it a lot. I wish we could share with you, but you could send us a message and Carrie can give you the the recipe. And that's about as good uh, as we can do. Hey, on this week's podcast, a couple of fun conversations. Uh, Later on, author Richard Lertzman talks with us about his new book, Deconstructing the Rat Pack. We get things underway, though, by talking with a comedian, writer. She was the co-creator of The Daily Show, one of the founders of Air America as well. We're talking about Liz Winstead who has been working on a brand new comedy special that is available on Vimeo. She recorded it over a couple of nights to an audience in kayaks out in Minnesota. We had fun talking about her new special, Corona Borealis and more with Liz Winstead. Liz, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I cannot wait to see the special. It looks like you picked a beautiful setting to discuss this uh, absolute (laughs) crap storm of a year. Well, you know, it's, as you rifled off uh, some of the things that I've done, you know, it's sort of been my career to respond to the world um, and and all of its ugliness. And so this was a year where it was the worst year ever. And then we were in quarantine and had COVID and there was no place to perform. So I was beside myself um, in New York at the height of the pandemic, which is where I live in Brooklyn. And I also live part of the year in Minnesota, which is where I'm from. And so having the pandemic hit, then having the murder of George Floyd happen and having the uprising happen here and just watching all this turmoil happen, I was like, how am I going to do a show that is COVID friendly, that will speak to everything? So I came back to Minnesota and I did what Minnesotans do, which is gather by a lake. And I had 20 comedy fans in kayaks watching <laughs> The first half of the show, I built a rickety stage with a friend out of, um, out of um, what do you call the pallet and lights and old crates. And then um, we did that in September. And then you guys are in Maine, so you know. It's like I can't do a show that responds to the world without knowing what the election results are. So I decided to shoot the second half of the show after the election. And in Minnesota, that means freezing. So 19 degree weather. I had 20 people gathered around five fire pits and we finished off the show outside. It, w- it would have been a perfect Maine show as well as a perfect <laughs> Minnesota show. But I, I understand you were inspired by Amy Klobuchar. Well, I figured if we, we all, she will never let you forget that she stood in a snowstorm and announced her run for president. And I was like, well, you know what? 
Uh, if you will go watch Amy Klobuchar give a boring political speech about running for president, I think you'll come and see me. I'm offering free booze and jokes. <laughs> and it worked out. And you mentioned this was really a hands-on experience. Now, is, is this just is this just publicity? Did you really put together the picnic baskets? Yes, I put together all the picnic baskets. I cooked all the food. I baked all the pie. I really wanted people, knowing that people had been really feeling, you know, scared and alone and frustrated and hadn't been out in a social gathering at all, I wanted to create a space that felt incredibly safe for people to come. And so I have a friend who lives on a lake, and they have acreage on this lake that's massive. So I had 10 picnic tables that were spaced 10 feet apart. Um, each individual picnic was made so that um, you just walked in and sat down at your table and opened up your picnic, and the only person that came in contact with your food besides you was me. And I had a bottle of wine there for each person. And uh, it just worked out really good. I'm sort of weird and crafty in that way, too. I, I get my yayas out cooking and decorating and making things. And so the whole experience from soup to nuts was, I got to be honest, um, something that I need to do because responding to the world, I said, is my jam. But also for my own self-preservation of being able to connect with other people and have some humanity throughout the whole process. It was really fun, actually. And everybody who worked on the crew, there was only eight people so that we could be safe. And everybody on the crew also felt like we really need to do this. We really need to laugh. 2020 is weighed on us like a brick. There's been so much, you know, just like asshattery that um, <laughs> it, needs to, it needs to come out into the world. And so it was a... It was a labor of love and a catharsis for everybody, and I think everybody had a really good time. We're talking with Liz Winstead here on Downtown. Let's let's talk about your hometown. I've got friends uh, who've worked in the uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul theater scene at the Guthrie and other places for years, and, and I guess we were all shocked by what happened to George Floyd. I was shocked that it happened in Minneapolis, and then it was just uh, another stark reminder that racism is everywhere in this country, and, and there are no there are no boundaries that prevent that from happening. Right, and also, you know, it wasn't the first time in Minneapolis. There was Philando Castile. There was others. You know, police um, police violence over policing has been something that has happened in in Minneapolis for a while. And so, one thing that's really um, was really interesting in my special is that I really wanted to address um, George Floyd. You know, the concept when people talk about defund the police, you know, what does that mean? Because people hear that and their, you know, shackles go up and people are very divided on, on what the definition of reimagining policing is and helping our communities and such. So I carved out space in my special to talk to uh, the city councilwoman who oversees the neighborhood that George Floyd was killed in and who is on the city council trying to help reimagine reimagine what policing looks like named Andrea Jenkins. And she's an incredible woman, first black trans woman ever elected to public office. And so she was able to walk people through and really clarify what it means to allocate some funds to, um, you know, mental health workers and other people who really want to help in um, keeping, you know, policing good and safe. And then also facilitating help uh, when sometimes it isn't an armed officer that you need, sometimes it's a mm. counselor, sometimes it's an expert, and really laying out why that makes sense. And so that was really it was really good to be able to um, open space and center somebody in my comedy show 
was able to sort of lay out what all that meant in the landscape of the world. So it's pretty cool. You also addressed the virus and I would say our COVID response, but of course there was none from the federal government. Have you have you been able to figure out, we were talking about it before the show, why that happened and in particular, why of, of all of all the things that have happened in this bizarre year, why the current occupant of the White House chose to make masks the hill that he would not climb? I It's so fascinating because me being born and raised in Minnesota, I just I love talking to your audience, you know, being in Maine, you know, I understand rugged individualism. I understand. I understand a lot of that. I don't understand why Trump, why people were all of a sudden like uh, a mask is anathema to all that is freedom for me. I saw a woman who was standing with a sign that said, I will not, I will not suffocate my unborn child. Oh God. (laughs) And I was like, you're wearing pants. Like, what are you talking about? I don't even understand anymore what it is that the freedom is that people are saying they don't have. There's many things we cover up on a daily basis. We're we're not walking around naked. You know, it's interesting how people forget if you live in a neighborhood or amongst people, you kind of have a social contract with them to say, you know what I'm going to try to do? Not get you sick. Because it also benefits me. But instead, the weirdness of, you know, the my body, my choice men who are the same people who are, you know, standing outside of reproductive health clinics holding signs saying, I get to have a say in your body. Um, the irony is not lost on people with the uterus. Trust me. What was the biggest challenge of the quarantine for you, Liz? Wow. You know, that has been um, a hard one. But I think the biggest challenge of the quarantine for me was I, like so many people, um, had um, relatives who were had also multiple illnesses in their family. I, I had a sister with ALS who passed away in September. And so being able, not being able to see her and not being able to care for her until I decided one of the reasons I, I also came back to Minnesota understanding I could do my show was also so I could be a caregiver. So I came back in quarantine so that I could also caregive for her um, in her last months. And so, you know, just watching how um, everybody was really suffering with just dealing with COVID and, and, and being separated from loved ones in and of themselves. And then everybody else has another story to tell, right, about an elderly parent, about somebody else who was either suffering from COVID or was in a nursing home or a facility that they couldn't see. And so I think I was in the camp of people who you know, had to be separated from loved ones who I knew didn't have a, a long period left on earth and to try to figure out how to make that happen. So that was pretty rough. Uh, you mentioned uh, the second half of the special took place after the election. That that confuses me because uh, I understand from the president and his crack legal <laughs> team of uh, Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe that the election's not over. Well, you know, um, sh- my show's not for everyone. <laughs> And I have to say, um, the people who enjoy my show the most are the people who actually believe the election's over. Uh, You know, for the uh, for the 70 million people who um, are following Giuliani into some, um, I don't know, crack addled rage, uh, they're not going to enjoy. But the the insistence with which Trump and co and especially the cronies who and the surrogates and 
Like, did every lawyer say no? I feel like legal <laughs> Zoom was like, nope. It was like Giuliani was left. Legal Zoom's like, we do wills. We don't do this. Um, and now, you know, I've just, I, I'm sure you've all seen, you know, the woman for going viral in Michigan who looked oh. like she was um, <laughs> sipping the white wine in the afternoon before she picked up the kids in the van. Um, uh, it's all just a mesmerizing thing. I just, I I just don't understand how hoaxing could be so profound and that we all just had the wool pulled over our eyes by, um, you know, the deep state and the QAnons and the carrying on because it seems real. <laughs> People are very upset. I, I want to talk about media. We mentioned you were the founder of, of Air America and, and progressive voices are out there and, and certainly with an agenda, but, but, I always feel like, yes, there are people on the left who have a point of view and they express that in, in the broadcast world, but they're not out there openly lying and spreading conspiracy theories. Yeah, how do we, and I'm a, I'm a First Amendment person, but how do we hold accountable those outlets that amplify and provide a platform for just absolute, not only disturbing, but dangerous nonsense? I mean, isn't that true? I mean, I... I feel like that is it, whoever can solve this problem, you know, is the person that's going to give us democracy back. You know, one idea I had was maybe we could force um, anybody who is reading the news or giving information or making public statements to have to wear those shot collars that we make dogs wear. And then it's programmed so that every time it lies, it gets shocked and it's just jolted. So we just watch it happen. <laughs> And then Hannity would look like he was in a Cronenberg film. Yeah, yeah, I know. He would be Cronenberg, actually. <laughs> Just turn into Cronenberg. <laughs> uh, the special is called Corona Borealis, a night of comedy under stars. Available right now, Vimeo, a video on demand. And the proceeds benefit uh, a group that you've been working with for a while now, uh, Abortion Access Force. Can you talk about the work that's being done there? Sure. What we're trying to do is, um, as you, as we just talked about, dispel, dispel the myth around um, access to abortion, what abortion is, try to remove some of the stigma, because um, unintended pregnancy happens to one in four people who are reproductive age, and, you know, circumstances are different, and um, it's very important for me that um, when it comes to a full plate of equality that every citizen deserves, um, the 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 right to choose and reproductive freedom uh, should be on that plate because um, when the government decides what you can do with your body, you are no longer a full citizen of that government. And it also puts a blockade between you and your path to self-determination. And I just want to make sure that every citizen has that full path open to them. And if they stumble, that's on their own, but nobody should get in the way of it. What poses a greater danger uh, to women's reproductive rights going forward? Is it is it the Supreme Court and the shift that's taken place there or those hundreds of, of federal judgeships that Trump has appointed? That's a really good question. I think that it goes one step earlier than that. It is the state legislatures that are passing laws that have nothing to do with protecting the health of anybody who's pregnant that have that are all designed to just, um, you know, harm people. And those laws go through the federal courts and eventually to the Supreme Court. So it's all kind of a fine complement of, of, uh, of bad news. And so I think changing the hearts and minds and having people talk about their own experiences of 
why they may have chosen abortion, why it's important to have birth, access to birth control and access to comprehensive sex ed out there in the world so that people can make healthy choices. And um, I think that we have to really focus on what that is because not only are people trying to regulate abortion, they're also trying to regulate birth control. They're trying to regulate how we talked about uh, sex ed in schools and with our kids. And if you hold back information, um, you know, all you don't live in a world where there's unicorns and abstinence. You know, <laughs> like there is, there is no such thing. The most fun we can have is sex, and it's free, and so it's going to happen all the time. And how are we going to do it safely, and make sure that the uh, outcomes of it are um, are what everybody wants? And so I think that we really have to pay attention to our state legislatures. I know you have had some fine, fine governors in the past um, who have been not great on um, reproductive issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking Paula Page yes. uh, specifically. Um, and so I think that, you know, pay attention locally because right now with the courts so full and so stacked full of um, people that have radical agendas that um, if we can control the laws that go through the courts and have it be not um, these laws that don't make any sense, um, we can do a good job of staving off um, some kind of bad things that could help overturn Roe v. Wade. All right. On a lighter note, Liz, uh, we're pikers compared to Minnesota, only about 5,000 rivers, lakes, and streams here in Maine. But I'm curious, for future reference, how good an audience is a kayak audience? Here's what's hilarious. So, you know, when you're planning for something, there's just things you don't think about. And the kayak audience was fairly good. Like, that part was really good. Um, There was a certain amount of using your paddle. We had people anchored, but using your paddle so that you could be watching me. The thing that I didn't allot for, and this is going to make you laugh really hard, is when you shoot a special in the woods at night, your ambient sound is cricket. And so (laughs) to a comedian, the term, how's your joke go? If it dies, you go cricket. So anytime I took a pause or if I did a joke that just had like a marginal laugh point or didn't land, (laughs) you just hear cricket and cricket. So I did edit out some crickets. I'm not going to lie because it was hilarious. At one point I was like, oh, my God, every moment there is just crickets. (laughs) And and Liz, before we let you go, uh, what would you be willing to pay if you had the need for a preemptive pardon from the president? What would I pay? Wait, I don't think I understand the question. Well, he's giving out apparently these preemptive pardons, not specifying what they're for. That seems to be like a, oh, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Oh, yes, his quid pro quo payment. Yeah. What would I pay to get a pardon from Donald Trump? <laughs> um, I would pay nothing. Because <laughs> I feel like if Donald Trump threw me in jail, I could make a big enough stink um, to get pardoned by a legitimate president. The term legitimate president, I have vague recollection of what that was in the past. Uh, I look forward to, well, 50 days away doing that once again. It was fun. Yes, it's in the history books. Read about them. Legitimate <laughs> presidents, they exist. There was 44 of them. Liz's new special, Corona Borealis, a night of comedy under the stars, available on Vimeo Video On Demand. Uh, Liz, it's been a real treat for us to talk with you. Can't wait to watch the special. We appreciate you making time for us today. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me. That is Liz Winstead talking with us about her new comedy special, Corona Borealis.
here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll uh, pause for a moment for a word from Cross Insurance. When we come back, author Richard Lertzman talks Rat Pack with us here on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. Well, just recently, In we words, celebrated the 105th birthday of Francis Albert Sinatra, the chairman of the board and the leader of the Rat Pack. In the glory days of Vegas some 60 years ago, that time period is chronicled in a brand new book by best-selling author Richard Lertzman called Deconstructing the Rat Pack. Joey, the Mob, and the Summit, as Richard takes a look at the Rat Pack through the eyes of a, a man he talked to a number of times over the years. He was the last surviving member of the Rat Pack, comedian Joey Bishop. The book is remarkable. What uh, what made you decide to look at the Rat Pack uh, through the lens of Joey Bishop? Well, I had got to know Joey for about 20 years, and uh, I'd visit his home. Out, he lived out, outside of Newport Beach in Lido, Isle, and he had a shrine to the Rat Pack, and he would tell me the inside stories and and all about the Rat Pack. And along the way, also, I had uh, known uh, certain people who talked like this, who uh, <laughs> came from the East Coast, in the area I came from, Cleveland. And uh, they had uh, gone to Las Vegas and built up a lot of Las Vegas. And I got to know guys like Mo Dalitz and Maxie, uh, Maxie Diamond and uh, Carl Cohn. And they had built places like the Sands and the Rancho, the Desert Inn. And they told me the really the blueprint behind the Rat Pack. So I, I, I thought of a great concept was to mix Joey's knowledge of the Rat Pack and the real truth of the Rat Pack rather than the legend and put it all together. Although late in his life, uh, Joey was not all that thrilled about talking to you about the Rat Pack. <laughs> jo- Joey resented. He was bitter that everything about his life came down to the Rat Pack because he said, I had a a situation comedy, I had a talk show, and, uh, you know, it's not all Rat Pack, but, you know, the truth is that the height of his career is right in the middle of that Rat Pack, of that 28 days in Ocean's Eleven. So, you know, that's that's what he's really remembered for. I love what Sheldon Leonard told you, his reaction when you explained to him that you were basing a book uh, around the experiences of Joey Bishop. Yes, Sheldon was a, a, a tough guy in movies, but he was this great producer. He produced uh, the Andy Griffith Show and Danny and Dick Van Dyke and Danny Thomas and I Spy. And I, I said, I'd like to meet Frank Sinatra. He goes, no way, because he had appeared with Frank in Guys and Dolls as an old friend of his. I said, how about Joey Bishop? He goes, why would you want to see that Meshuggah, who's like a <laughs> kind of a crazy guy, Yiddish. And uh, he, he had so many problems with Joey. As a producer, he produced the Joey Bishop TV show with uh, Abby Dalton was in it, and Joe Besser for the Three Stooges. And, uh, Joey just caused so much 
uh, burned so many bridges and so many problems. And uh, guys like Gary Marshall, who did uh, Happy Days in Laverne and Shirley and directed Pretty Woman, was he cut his teeth in that show. And he told me all the, the uh, problems that happened in that show. So how did Joseph Gottlieb of, of Philadelphia uh, become Joey Bishop and, and as you say, a, a guy with, with ordinary skills become, as he called himself, the glue that held the Rat Pack together? He became the Bishop Brothers early on with some friends of his, and then he worked a lot of out of mob clubs starting in the late 30s, and uh, he he worked all over the country, worked hard, and he was a journeyman comic. He he wasn't Jack Benny, he wasn't George Burns, he was, you know, he had a, a certain skill set, which was he was a great opening act for, for people. And eventually, he got lucky and he got put as the opening act for Frank Sinatra in the 50s. And what better place to showcase yourself is to open for Frank Sinatra. So for about eight, ten years, he was opening for Frank. And when Frank put together the Rat Pack, his friends, Joey fell right into it and and that really just set Joey off into a, his own situation comedy, his own talk show, and it set him off for 10 years, you know, just being associated with that. And as you explain in the book, Rick, uh, the, the Rat Pack was in many ways a marketing concept. It was, you know, it's, we think of today of boy bands, and really it is the first boy band because uh, it, a, a guy named Al Freeman, who was the publicist at the Sands Hotel, and the, and the guys who owned it had uh, the mob guys had invested tons of money into these these big palaces, the Flamingo and the Desert Inn and the Sands and and the uh, uh, the Aladdin and all these places, and and they really were only drawing people from Los Angeles. They wanted a plan to put Las Vegas on the map, and so far the people who had appeared there were Jimmy Durante and Xavier Cugat, Sophie Tucker, and they and they so they gave Frank Sinatra nine percent of the Sands Hotel. That was Bo Dalitz and the mob guy. And and when Frank was there, they told Frank that they thought that they wanted to have a super event. And Frank had just been working with Dean Martin in Some Come Running in a film, and he really wanted to work with him on stage. And Sammy had, Davis Jr. had just been in an accident and lost his eye and was just learning how to dance again and do everything again. So Frank wanted to work with them, so he said, let me put Frank and, and Dean together. He had seen this loose act with Louis Prima and his wife Keely Smith and mm-hmm. Sam Butera in the lounge at the Sahara, and he really wanted to do a loose act. Uh, so as they set that up, they set up a 28-day event in Las Vegas. Meanwhile, Peter Lawford, who was uh, had just married uh, Patricia Kennedy, was trying to shop this script called Ocean's Eleven around town with Peter as a star. He took it to Frank. Frank loved it, took it to Jack Warner. And Frank came with the idea. He said, why don't we shoot it at the Sands? Since he owned 9%, he knew it would be a big seller for the hotel he owned part of. And Warner was thrilled because it was free to shoot there. So this they set up 28 days in February of 1960, 60 years ago, uh, 28 days. In, in Las Vegas, of a, an 8 o'clock show and a midnight show. Tickets were $7. Wow. Um, <laughs> so, but they were sold out like crazy. So they, they, did, they did an 8 o'clock show, a 12 o'clock show, went out into the casino and messed around with customers and went to, to, uh, to, the, to the lounge shows. And then, well, I had to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning for hair and makeup 
and they did a movie all day. They shut Ocean's Eleven. And the world converged on this. I mean, it became, everybody wanted to be seen and heard in Las Vegas. So everybody now from New York and Chicago and St. Louis and Cleveland and Miami, they all converged on Las Vegas, along with all the news media. And it became this, like, uh, the Woodstock of its era. It was, <laughs> you know, it was Frank, Dean, and Sammy, and Joey, and Peter Lawford. And is it safe to say that the Sands itself is an integral character in this story? The Sands is because it, it's the Copa, Copa room and another mobster who used to run uh, the Copacabana in Los Angeles, New York, Jack and Trotter ran it. And uh, the Sands had 250 rooms. When they announced this event, they had 35,000 reservations the first day. So all the guys who owned the, all the hotels, all the mob guys, were thrilled to death because it got spread out <laughs> to all the hotels. And when they made Ocean's Eleven, they made sure they include, they didn't step on any toes. They included all the hotels, so no one was left out. We're talking with uh, Richard Lertzman. His book is Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey, the Mob, and the Summit. I thought it was interesting uh, to learn from your book that uh, one of the reasons the Rat Pack and when other groups that preceded it existed is because Frank Sinatra didn't like being alone. Yeah, Frank was Frank was a pack animal. So for early on, Frank was friends with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and David Niven and this group, they called them the Homely Hills Rat Pack. Because Lauren Bacall said, you look like a pack of rats. So the newspaper, James Bacon, stuck the name on the Rat Pack to them. So when they came around to do this show, Frank didn't like it, but they called them, the, the, the press again called them the Rat Pack. Because, you know, these are his buddies, his friends. Now, while they, these guys are now in their mid-40s. Frank was 45 years old in, in 1960. So, you know, here he is. He's 45 years old. And they're middle-aged, but and these guys, and this is a big payday to them. So while the legends are that these guys are out carousing and partying all night, fact is, Jeannie uh, uh, Martin was with Dean Martin, uh, Patricia Lawford's with Patricia Kennedy's with Peter Lawford, and Sammy's with Mae Britt, and Joey's with Sylvia, and these were guys who were very disciplined. Uh, Dina Martin told me that. Uh, Whenever her dad was on stage, that drink was actually apple juice. Well, another myth, too, that you uh, reveal in the book is that they, they really weren't all that close friends. Yeah, yeah, Frank's friends were guys like Jimmy Van Heusen, and he had another guy named Jilly Rizzo, and he had these guys that hung around him, and they were it's professional. I mean, these guys were professional friends. I mean, Frank liked Dean. He, he loved Sammy Davis Jr., but... You know, these guys had big separate careers, and it's like, you know, the big, you know, it's like the, the, the big three of entertainment at that period, you know, merged together. And the thing is, these guys knew that since they're in their mid 40s, their window of fame was kind of as megastars were kind of fading because Elvis was right on their tails. And then right, right around the corner are the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. So Pop, and Frank was aware of that. Pop taste change. So this is their their big crowning moment, and it was a way to for the vault to cash in. Joseph Kennedy saw this as an opportunity as well. Yeah, Joe Kennedy, who, you know, who was one of the most brilliant uh, minds of, of in, in, in PR. 
Um, he, you know, he was a bootlegger before he went to the court of St. James's in Bastard, England. And so he knew these mob guys. So he saw, he didn't want his son to look like Richard Nixon. I mean, John Kennedy and Richard Nixon were almost the same age, but, you know, Nixon looked stodgy and old, and he wanted Kennedy to look like he's, he's young and invigorated and from a young generation, and he's hip. So he told his son-in-law, take Jack with you and bring him down and showcase him in the middle of that rat pack. And they called it, they started nicknaming it the Jack Pack. <laughs> because from the stage, for three days, there's John Kennedy and Frank saying, this is the next president, this is, and they... They really played him up, and he got all this exposure. And Frank got really into it because he wanted to be, he wanted to be a president banker. I mean, he had he had done almost everything in the business, but this is a way for him to be a part of making a president. And so he he was there at the with the rest of the Rat Pack at the uh, the uh, Democratic convention in Los Angeles, in June of 1960. Um, he was the one who ran the inauguration. Um, Dean didn't care about politics. In fact, he didn't even show up at the inauguration. He was, and Sammy was kind of blocked at the inauguration because of his, his affair with May Britt. Yeah. And in, in some ways the election of Kennedy and, and the situation with Sammy and then with Peter Lawford uh, really drove a wedge and, and maybe helped speed up the end of the Rat Pack as they all sort of uh, drifted their separate ways for the most part after that. Yeah. Be, you know, Frank Frank really wanted the president to fly to his house in Palm Springs, and this would be a crowning achievement for him. And he was planning to fly out, and Frank was building a heliport and put all, built all this this the convention rooms and everything at his house in in, uh, in Palm Springs. And then he was being he was involved with Sam Giancana at the Calneva Lodge, and Joe Kennedy was really upset. He didn't want his son to be seen with Frank getting all this publicity about working with the mob. So he laid it upon his son-in-law, Peter Lawford, to give him the good news that Frank wasn't co- that the president wasn't coming to Frank's house, but he was going to Bing Crosby's house, and <laughs> Bing was a Republican, which made it even worse. So Frank, you know, said, the next sound you hear, and he hung up the phone on Peter, and Peter was out. Uh, Joey did the hand that fed him. Joey... Frank asked him a favor to fill out the Caldeva Lodge, and Joey gave him all these demands, and Joey was out. Um, and then in 63, when, when the president was assassinated, that took the whole air out of the sails of this because it was the Jack Pack, and it was associated with Kennedy, and, and that kind of spelled the end for the Rat Pack. Now, Joey Bishop was the last man standing from the Rat Pack, and then after he passed, as you reveal, in the final chapter of the book, uh, we learned some secrets about his personal life. Yeah, you know, I had met Joey for over 20 years, and he had a wife of long-standing, Sylvia. And what I didn't know was that this young girl who worked for Joey was also Joey's mistress. And uh, she ended up with, uh, Joey had a, had a nice estate, even though he didn't work pretty much the last 40 years of his life. Um, he had a great business manager, and uh, shockingly, uh, all the money was left to his his mistress, Dora. And uh, I think it's, it's the estate is still in in dispute almost 13 years later. How do you explain the the continued appeal of the Rat Pack? Uh, you write in the book about the miniseries uh, that was based on them, and and people still look back at that time, and it was a brief moment in time, but with great affection. You know, it, Rich, it's amazing. It resonates 60 years later. 
And there are Rat Pack trivia groups. Uh, a friend of mine, Sandy Hackett, who's Buddy Hackett's son, uh, does a Rat Pack trivia group. There's one that's at Mandalay Bay that's when before Vegas shut down, they were sold out. And people love the music of Sinatra and of, of uh, Sammy Davis. They love Dean and Sammy. And when you saw them on stage, they were like electric. I mean, they were just so amazing. And it still resonates to this day because probably because of the music and probably because of that swagger and that the last of this misogynistic era <laughs> that, uh, that the Rat Pack represented. And when you watch Ocean's Eleven, you hear uh, Chicky Poo and have a little a ring-a-ding-ding. And, <laughs> and you watch it with the, in a perspective from 2020 and you go, you're not going to get away with that today. <laughs> you know, it's just it's a different era. Well, if you think you know the Rat Pack, uh, you need to read Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey, the Mob, and the Summit. It is a terrific ride through a fascinating time in American cultural history. Richard Lertzman, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, Rich, I appreciate it. Thank you, and happy holidays. Richard Lertzman uh, talking Rat Pack with us in his wonderful new book, Deconstructing the Rat Pack. Our thanks to Rick. Also thanks to comedian and writer Liz Winstead, and thanks to you for being with us this week on Downtown, the podcast. Tell your friends, spread the word, subscribe. If you're so inclined, leave us a big old positive five, or yeah, if you can make it happen, six-star review. That would be most appreciated as well. We'll join you next time on Downtown, the podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. For Kerry Haskell, this is Rich Kimball.